visitors flock to see Wilde's tomb in Paris. Though his body lies on French soil, his soul always belonged to England. Not surprisingly, the ghost of Oscar Wilde is said to haunt his former alma mater, Magdalene College. Tales of his spirit first surfaced in Oxford during 1934 when students encountered Wilde's specter on numerous occasions. The youthful specter of Oscar Wilde made several appearances in different dorm rooms in close proximity to his own former rooms at the university. Since that time, his apparition has made infrequent visitations around Magdalen. Beyond his former living quarters, scholars have encountered his vaporous image peering from balcony windows and lazily steering a boat underneath Magdalene Bridge in the mist rising above the nearby River Sherwell. Given the youthful appearance of Oscar's apparition, the haunting of Magdalen may be a simple case of residual energy. Wilde experienced both great joy and tremendous pain during his stay at the college. The deep emotions may have left a permanent imprint on the buildings and surrounding area. Either this or Wilde transcended his impoverished death to return to the place of his happiest memories for more scholarly pursuits. my ghoulies, and my moth people. Welcome to Noctivigant, the show about the strange, paranormal, otherworldly, and the people who write books about it. My name's Jay, and I am joined today by the haunted duo Nick and Rory. Not the adjective I was expecting to go with for this episode, but I'll take it. Hello. You're straight. I mean, it's true. <laughs> On this show, we are going to discuss, dissect, and review the best and worst in the world of paranormal and conspiracy literature. So settle in, buckle up, and prepare for a walk on the midnight roads of Noctivigant. In the cellar. It's a basement. Yeah, but I like the word cellar more. It sounds nicer. But, I mean, technically, yes, it is not a cellar. I don't have that cool, scary hatch door. That is true. You don't have that. And I actually, now that I say it out loud, I'm not even sure if that is, I'm not even sure if that is what uh, constitutes a cellar versus a basement. I have no idea. Actually, yeah, the longer I talk, I have no idea what the difference is between a cellar and a basement. A cellar is just dirt, is usually earthen in my brain. I thought we just called those a Michigan basement. Oh, God. I, is my whole life a lie? Well, Not the you, whole thing. I mean, it depends on who you ask and, like, what kind of framework we're talking about here. Because, yeah, probably. Cool. Cool. Um... Well, let's uh, stash that existential crisis off till 3 a.m. What are we reading today, Jay? We're reading Queer Hauntings by Ken Summers. Yep, uh, which for our listeners at home, this is a uh, a tour of various queer hauntings. This means specifically, uh, obviously, hauntings where the ghost is presumed to be a queer person or hauntings of 
uh, locations within the queer community, several uh, gay bars, several clubs and things like that uh, end up being discussed in the pages of this book. That is true. I can confirm that. Wow. <laughs> Riveting conversation, guys. Hey, we're tired. <laughs> well, I'm just, I mean, I, I don't have much to tack on to the end of the story was full of queer stories. Yep. No, I guess it, when we say queer, we mean people within the LGBTQIA plus community, but queer is easier, and I like it. Yep. Yeah. Same. I uh, I defer to you guys on what is the appropriate vernacular to be using, so I like it too now. <laughs> <laughs> See? See what a good friend and ally that Nick is? <laughs> the one true ally. You should join his cult when he starts it in a couple of months. I it's it's just I don't want my friends to be uncomf- made uncomfortable by, by my presence. Like that's the thing is it, it costs me nothing to address people how they wish to be addressed and treat them how they wish to be treated. So why wouldn't I do it? Weird. Right? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. The bar is so low and Nick leaps <laughs> over it with rocket shoes. <laughs> to be fair, I am very tall. Bar has to be pretty high to stop me. Everyone at my work is taller than me. That's not hard. Yeah, like like really that that's like so I, I don't know. It's like Tinkerbell showing up to work and being really pissed that everyone's bigger than her. <laughs> I'm so tired of being compared to Tinkerbell. <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's let's be I'm honest. not. Let's be honest. You're small, you got the kind of pixie-ish haircut. You generally cause mischief. Uh, what mischief do I cause? Every time you load the dishwasher. That's not mischief. I load the dishwasher in a perfectly normal. No, 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 no. no. You you way. you load it in an effective way. You yes. load it in a way where the dishes do get clean, but yes. it is not a way any rational human would load a dishwasher. I also bet you ten bucks that if you loaded the dishwasher the way I loaded the dishwasher, uh, the dishes would not get clean and they would somehow break while they were in there. And okay, and now we're going back to and you're mad that people compare you to Tinkerbell <laughs> when you're using fairy magic on the fucking dishwasher. I mean, he's got you there. I'm sorry. Look, all I'm saying is that Tinkerbell was a cranky, jealous hoe, and I am not. I don't wow. think. I do not think that that is entirely true. She was cranky. That's true. I'll give you that. But I wouldn't classify her as a hoe. <laughs> yeah, sure. I cranky and jealous. Yes, but we have not seen any textual evidence of her hoeing. That's that is correct. From the play to Peter and Wendy to any of the animated stuff to Hook. Though I guess one could say that she did uh, in Hook. You know, she did. Uh, she did want Peter. Yeah, but that—that's that like was genuine love. Yeah, that's like it's like it's one one person. That's not Hoenn. Okay, okay. Anyone out there who has some good Tinkerbell fanfic of her Hoenn, send it to Jay, not Rory and I, just Jay. <laughs> I was gonna say, do not send it to me. <laughs> My Twitter handle is at Midwest Undead. I'm genuinely curious to see what you people come up with. And you know what? If uh, any of the fanfiction is beautifully written enough that it uh, moves me to tears, I'll consider leaking my Ao3 handle. Oh. That is a oh, challenge. Wow! No, that's a, that. I, it took me, it took me what like five years of friendship for you to well deeply, <laughs> well deeply fucked up on both alcohol and marijuana to tell me what it was. 
That's how long it took, ladies and gentlemen. It took you three weeks to figure for before I would tell you what pairing I was writing fic for currently. Remember that? Yes, and it I was... had I had to guess it. You didn't tell me. <laughs> I was... I had to drag it out of you like a goddamn Spanish inquisitor. And it was driving you genuinely insane. Yeah, like, here's the thing. It's starting... like it's, it's not even something I'm particularly interested in or want to know. But the fact you were keeping it from me drove me crazy. You want to know how long it took me to get JZO3? Hmm. Zero percent effort. I asked. Yeah, I asked too. But you know what the difference is? You're married to them. We weren't at the time. You were dating. Yes. <laughs> okay. What are we? Let's talk about this goddamn book. All right. Awesome. So our book this week opens with both a preface and an introduction. Fancy. Yeah, I know. The preface is about our author Ken Summers' first foray into the paranormal. He was guided there by a friend of his named Chris, who told him a story of hearing an invisible wagon, drawn by invisible horses, racing by him on an old bridge in Everett, Ohio. Ken was so excited by this tale that he almost immediately began collecting and documenting stories of hauntings, all of them related to the Chiahoga River. Chris and Ken's friendship was intense and multifaceted, as is often the case with queer and non-straight people searching for connection and community. Chris had a boyfriend, a temperamental one at that, but that didn't stop him and Ken from crossing lines now and then. But life had other plans, and Chris and Ken were tugged apart by its strange mechanisms. Eventually, their quality time was reduced down to chance meetings in bars and clubs. It was in one of these bars that Ken had an experience that took him from excited about ghosts to absolutely hooked. He was out late, looking for Chris, and leaned over the bar briefly only to feel a body, a human body, pressed tightly against his before backing away. Ken was startled and turned around, but there was no one there. And that wasn't the biggest shock of the evening. Chris was dead. He'd taken his own life in that very establishment and apparently had come back for one more hug. Ken says that Chris's presence lingers in his life, that he sees shadows or senses the man nearby now and then. That experience flows nicely into Summers' intro. Here, he gives us his thesis, that tales of the paranormal are, like much of the rest of our stories, overwhelmingly dominated by straight narratives. Summers asks us to recall brides eternally wandering their abandoned estates, looking for grooms that aren't coming home, or nuclear families that stubbornly refuse to give up their nests. Hell, even animal ghosts and demons seem to pop up more often than gay ghosts. Furthermore, he draws an interesting parallel between the human terror of death and the queer terror of coming out. Breaking free of the closet can be terrifying. Becoming your truest self could lead to abandonment, rejection, or even violence. All of those fears are realized at one point or another in this book, and many of the ghosts that Summers covers still seem to be searching for acceptance. Or at least remembrance. And that is going to lead us almost immediately into question one. Nice. Yep. The paranormal community has a diversity problem. That's not a secret, or at least it shouldn't be. So, in the spirit of our Occult America discussion, how do we make space for queer voices and experiences in our community? I think the easy answer is we have to be cognizant. Cognizant? Is that the right word? Yep. Yeah. We have to be cognizant of the people that we are engaging with in the community, right? Because there are queer creators out there, 
an example, is this this show. While Nick may be a straight man, I'm a token. You are the minority <laughs> on this show because Jay and I are are both queer. Yep. I mean, that's also indicative of our entire friend circle. True. Yeah. We 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 are surrounded by the uh, the rainbow mafia, as uh, as TikTok likes to call us. There are some people in our friend group where they're like, "I'm straight," and I'm like, "No, you're not." <laughs> but I I think just being I think being cogniz- cognizant of who you are engaging with in the community is is going to be one step. Um, I think uh, one of the conversations that we had with Alex uh, Matsuo, Alex, uh, is uh, a good like we discussed on there about like being aware of who you're inviting to things like paranormal paranormal conventions to be speakers and who you are in and like who you're bringing on to like even for us who we're bringing on to our show you know being aware that we need to make sure that we have given space for these people um not not necessarily us i think we do a, a pretty okay job i think like anything we could do better but i think we do a pretty okay job um but I think the biggest thing is being aware that there is this issue, right? And then actively trying to do your best to in, not just engage with, but seek out, find, try to prop up. And I think that a lot of this falls on the people who have a presence within this community. Like, off the top of my head, the most prolific LGBTQ queer person in the paranormal space that I can think of is Adam Barry. Uh, yeah, I would say so. At least in the circles that, well, in the events that we have attended, definitely that was the impression I got. Because, you know, he's a very openly gay man. Mm-hmm. But I haven't seen much in the way of trans voices or even like lesbian voices or really I, I not not much in the world of the non-binary voices at all, which is not surprising right now. Um, there's a few that I follow that I like, like uh, Mara Starling, the Welsh witch, big fan. Check her, check her stuff out. Um, and weird astrology on Twitter. Uh, another non-binary, I believe they're non-binary uh, creator who does some really cool stuff, so props to them. As well as tons and tons of other people that are, but uh, in terms of scale, they're very small for creators. You know, and a lot of them push out the same quality content as anybody else. You know, so I think a lot of it is, I think we talked about this on Occult America, is like you have to, if this is something you care about, even a little bit, you should be actively trying to seek it out yourself to try and find those creators to help prop them up because it's important. It absolutely is important because that, I mean, if people actively searched out for queer paranormal people, they might stumble on us and I'd want that. Yeah. You know? So I think you gotta, you gotta seek it out and you have to be aware that this is a problem. And if you're not aware that it's a problem and you're listening to this show, you're now aware that it's a problem. So go find more shows because you're listening to us. So at least good job there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, 
I mean, so giving my uh, my token opinion, uh, it's still a valid opinion. I know. I I I think I'm so getting a little metaphysical with it. I want to return to something I said on a previous episode, which is I have always fundamentally viewed the paranormal as a universal human experience. Uh, you know, the UFOs that are taking people don't really care who you're sharing your bed with. They don't really care how you self-identify. This is something that people experience regardless of any of those of those factors at least that we're aware of well yeah i uh, i if there's some big meta study that happens well, i was like well yes it seems that the aliens really don't like the dutch well that's fucking weird um i mean how many dutch abductions have you heard about well now i need to seek out the dutch thank you you're uh, welcome no but i mean i <laughs> the, i i guess on this topic part of the reason that as we've kind of gotten more into the paranormal community the paranormal community's diversity problem has surprised me is I, I just don't I don't understand how of any community that uh, the paranormal community can, uh, I, I guess, where, can attract people who would think that way. And the reason is because, I mean, think about so much of what we've read uh, in es esoteric lore and occult lore and UFO lore. Over and over again, there's these ideas of, say, oneness. There are ideas of, say, um of, you know, we are supposed to be more enlightened, loving of our fellow man. We need to be more trusting of each other. And I don't understand how you could come into a community where the ma vast majority of the literature is predicated on those ideas and come away saying, well, yeah, but no, this is for me. This is only for pe people who are exactly like me and no one else is allowed in this community. Well, I think part of the problem there is that so many of the paranormal people that do have a platform don't have a say yeah i mean i i also wonder how much of it is and again this is this is probably my own bias coming out uh specifically bias towards books uh is that i i do wonder sometimes how uh how much the the, the paranormal community at large is actually engaging with the body of literature that exists and that's the other thing i was gonna say even I would, I mean, not even just the community, but some of the creators that are out there, I don't, I don't believe that many of them have read even a quarter of the books that we've read. Yeah. And, and I guess to get back to the main question, uh, I, it's kind of anti gatekeeping. I've, I, I think that the way forward with the paranormal community is again, to accept that it is a human experience. And in that spirit, the door's open. Come on in. Like yep. everyone should be able to come and have a seat at the table. Yep. And I mean, I, I, in my ideal world, everyone should be feel, feel free to do that and contribute their ideas. And the questions of, again, who they're sleeping with, how they identify the color of their skin, those things just shouldn't even come up. It's irrelevant to the discussion that we're having about the nature of the human soul, about the nature of human destiny. And I'm not saying it's irrelevant to those people. It's incredibly important to those people. But I'm saying I'm not I don't see why we have to have any kind of schism at all. Now, granted, that goes for me personally beyond the paranormal community. I think that largely those sorts of opinions, uh, obviously bigotry is fucking stupid. Um, and I, I don't have a great opinion of people who hold those opinions. <laughs> I don't think that should be a shock given the, the, uh, the conversations we've had on this show. So, yeah, I, I agree with you, Rory. Uh, you know, seek it out. I would also say don't judge. If you meet somebody who's different from you, say, cool, they're different from me and move on with your goddamn life. Because uh, most of the time, it's none of your business. Um, yeah, and I, I, uh, 
Yeah, I think that's largely it. Uh, Doors open, come on in, and don't be a dick. Yeah. Probably less eloquent than what you said. I don't know if what I said was eloquent. Now it isn't. (laughs) I'm having a stroke. Stop having a stroke. You're having an elegant stroke. It's very elegant. (laughs) As I slur my words and slowly die. The image of you on the ground, one half of your face going melted candle. You're just twitching, but you have one pinky raised the whole time. One pinky up. It's just a lot more appropriate that I chose the Oscar Wilde cult reading now. It's just like (laughs) elegant strokes. Like that man knew how to die elegantly. Uh, Yeah. So what do you think, Jay? Uh, Well, in my gay little opinion. um... (laughs) Well, you are little. You are gay. Jesus fucking Christ. Let's hey, go you to, brought it up first. Let's go to Tinkerbell. What do you think, Tink? <laughs> really, Nick? You're going to call a gay man a fairy to his face? <laughs> yes. yes. What? <laughs> <laughs> the rest of this episode is the sound of me beating you to death with my Apollo statue. How are you going to do that? You're so small. <laughs> I'm going to start with your knees, and then when you lose the use of your legs, I will move on to your head. I'm not Rory. My knees are fine. They won't be when they get hit with metal. Yeah, I'm going to hit the side of your knee with there metal, you go. and then you're never going to fully recover from that. I think I'll just throw you. You won't be able to walk. I don't think I'll let that happen. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I, I just don't. put a hand on their head and they won't be able to reach me. I don't think that's going to work. You have to sleep sometime. I got these long monkey arms for a reason. You have to sleep sometime. To hold off the tink. All right, let it go. So, Jay, what do you think? <laughs> I've, throughout the various stages of my life, I've noticed this reoccurring pattern with any hobby that is considered... With any hobby that is considered quote-unquote nerdy or bizarre or is likely to get you picked on for in high school is that a lot of those hobbies end up getting kind of, at least on on a pop culture level, end up getting dominated by heterosexual white people, particularly heterosexual men who find community and solace and acceptance there by embracing the hobby. And then when that community starts to get more diverse or the people in that community who are not straight heterosexual, who are not white heterosexual people start going, hey, could I get shoved to the sidelines less just just a little bit could i be on the sidelines a little bit less in this community that i love just as much as you there is this backlash that seems fueled by an almost rabid anger that seems to boil down to kind of like what nick was saying of people get this idea of like because this is the only place where i've ever felt accepted it is for me and only for me and people who are not like me coming into that community are not increasing that community, they're taking it away from me. And they're doing that on purpose, maliciously, to hurt me, and it is making this thing that I love less special and less available to me. Ah, selfish babies. Yes, and that is a cognitive distortion born out of a privilege bubble getting burst for the first time in your life. And I... And it's it's deeply frustrating, and there are times where I feel like that is being done deliberately and maliciously by people, but I, I also just think that 
we have to kind of address the again the root cognitive distortion of other people participating in the thing you like is not going to necessarily lead to you having less time and space to do it if that makes sense if it's like other people coming in doesn't necessarily mean that you are getting shoved out and if you are having that reaction like if like and it like if if basically if you are part of the paranormal community and you hear some people saying like hey we need to try and do more to uplift queer voices and we need to kind of make this less, you know, homogenous and bring in a more diverse set of people and you react with anger, I really need you to sit down and examine why that is. Because a lot of straight people uh, insist that they are not homophobic or transphobic in the way a lot of white people insist that they are not racist and as a white person who has had to confront that in myself, you are, it's not your fault, and it's not something that you're doing on purpose, and it doesn't make you evil, but if you are a straight person who grew up in America, there is more homophobia baked into your basic belief systems than you are ever going to be comfortable admitting that there is. Yeah, just like racism. Oh, I mean, yep, ab- absolutely. I mean- I was actually thinking about this earlier. So, I mean, as we mentioned earlier on the show, um, our friend circle is very queer. Um, and that, when I was trying to think back over the course of my life, how that kind of came about, because it wasn't the case when we were kids. Um, and then over time, just bit by bit, all the people I knew, the people I hung out with, the people I grew up with, uh, came to re- certain revelations about themselves. And that's fine. But Guilty. when I was thinking about this, though, I realized, like, you know, when I was a kid, I totally... Uh, I totally used gay as an insulter. As a oh, yeah. Slur, as, as I jokes. did, too. You and me did, did oh, it we all did it the all time. the time, yeah. And, well, I can't, you know, in the modern context, I cringe deeply when I think yeah. of those. The The fact is, I mean, like you were saying, Jay, I mean, it is still baked in there. Uh, it's I, still- I used I used the, um, the bad word for gay. I don't even want to say Cigarettes? it. Cigarettes? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you called people British cigarettes. Yeah. Uh, all I did that all the time. Yeah, no, I mean, I I remember it too. Or, uh, I mean, here's the thing: is uh, it, it probably not in the context that we joke about it now? But when we were in high school, we used to joke all the time about running off and having toured like gay sex together. Oh yeah, and we definitely meant it in a derogatory way. Oh yeah, like we're gonna go butt fuck each other was the way that it was it was framed. Oh yeah, no, that uh, that was. And, and now it's evolved into a, um, uh, it's very similar, but also very different context. A secret romance. Yes, exactly. It's a, sec- <laughs> it's a secret romance. Mostly it's something to freak out our spouses. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, and I, I, I don't know, like, but because I went through that experience though, I think maybe I had the luxury of kind of having that kind of uh, having the chance to come to grips with those elements of myself way earlier than a lot of other people. Um, and I, I guess to build on what you were saying, Jay, like when it comes to the paranormal or any other uh, community you're part of it, it, again, I come back to it. Usually I'm going to point, put the asterisks on there saying, usually it doesn't matter who is joining. That's a good thing. Your community's growing. More diverse ideas are coming in. And even if you don't like that person personally, they're still contributing something to mm-hmm. your community. Yeah, uh, there's plenty of people in the paranormal community that I'm not a big fan of, but 
they're not bad people. Yeah, exactly. And I will the the asterisks I put on there is simply because earlier when I was saying doors open, come on in. Um, it's not open to Nazis. (laughs) Basically, if you're coming in there to homogenize that community, if you're bringing in bigoted views, get the fuck out. I don't want you. Yeah. And that's the thing. And, uh, And part of that, again, I go back to if you truly believe that the the amount of pigmentation in your skin or the fact that you prefer one orifice over another uh makes uh, if you believe that those make you a more worthy human being then quite frankly your opinions and theories about the paranormal are probably pretty fucking stupid yep i i don't i and and maybe that's me being a bigot against bigots but i no, can live I, with that i'm okay with it no not i mean like you said if you read even a single book in <laughs> in in this world uh you'll start to uh realize that uh being ha- having those kind of views goes counter to where this seems to be heading. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and also again, like the big thing is if this is an ostracized community, um, which I mean, arguably it is to a degree, not nearly as much as it used to be. Oh yeah. Um, but like, if you do feel like you're in an ostracized community, what do you gain by excluding people? You have, all you do is ensure you will remain an ostracized community. Yep. I just see so many parallels to when I was a teenager and still identifying as a girl and desperately trying to not get treated by like shit by the comic book community. And again, that thing about I said of it was it was rage when I complained about sexism in comics, when I complained about racism in comics. The response I got from white men in that community was seething fucking hatred, and I was threatened with violence on multiple occasions for bringing it up it, to the point where, it, and again, it, I, I feel like it just genuinely boils down to not just selfishness. I think some people who, you know, f- at least from their perception, have been picked on and ostracized their whole lives for their quote-unquote weird interests when they get an opportunity to be the gatekeeper and the bully, it's literally just too tempting to pass up for a lot of people. Yeah, it, 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 it's, you know, it, when you put it in that context, it really is sad. It, 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 speaks, to a, it speaks to someone who is so utterly uh, unaware, of them, uh, unaware of the impact they have on other people, unaware of the fact that other people have emotions, someone who is completely consumed with their own subjective experience that they can't recognize what they're doing. Yep. I mean, I mean yeah, it's just, it's just sad. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think for me personally, the... I think I think for me is like besides actively seeking out this content and doing your best to kind of protect the people in your community that are more marginalized than you or are kind of newer to the community. I, I genuinely think that it's and this is the hardest part of it is that we as an entire community need to be a lot better about examining our own biases and when we have emotional reactions to discussions like this, doing the scary, difficult work of sitting down and being like, okay, wh- where is this coming from? Why am I reacting like this? And is this a rational adult way to be reacting to this? Yeah. 
And if you come to the conclusion that um, it is, you're probably wrong. Reassess it. Uh, but, uh, but yeah. Yeah. Have we beaten that one to death? I believe we have. Okay. <laughs> Let's uh, keep on marching. No. We have a lot of uh, we have a lot of uh, gay hauntings to cover. Yep. All right. Now we don't have the time, and I don't have the patience to go over every story found in these pages. So for each section, we're going to focus on one, two, or maybe three stories. And for this section in particular, we're going to start with a public figure that you might be surprised to find in here. Lizzie goddamn Borden. Dun, dun, dun. Now, I, 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 one quick aside, I will say, I found it funny how in the introduction he talks about how uh, queer hauntings are marginalized and that you don't really hear about them, you don't really know about them. But then the first story is Lizzie Borden. That was a disconnect for me, but anyway. <laughs> no, it's fair. Uh, finding her in here was not quite as jarring as finding Elizabeth Bathory in here, but, you know, at least I knew Bathory was queer before I read this book. Yeah. To be fair, it's speculation that Lizzie Borden is or was gay. It's likely yeah. based on what we know, but mostly just speculate. Yeah, we we don't know yeah. for sure. I mean that, yeah. and that's the case with a lot of the figures who get covered in this book cuz uh they often it based off the time period they lived in yeah. couldn't exactly advertise it or they just literally did not have the words for it. Yeah. Like there were there were many cultures and civilizations where being by what we would nowadays call bisexual or pansexual was considered so much the default that they didn't have separate terms for it. And it was right. just kind of like, well, yeah, everybody cheats on their husbands with girls. Why do you, that's what you do. How the fuck else do you cope with this? <laughs> <laughs> Milk and goddamn goats all day? Ugh, no, thank you. <laughs> uh, so moving on. For the eight people that aren't familiar with the tale, Lizzie Borden was accused of murdering her father and stepmother in the 1890s, a crime which she was later acquitted of. Despite being found not guilty, her hometown of Fall River never really believed that her hands were clean. Lizzie, who later changed her name to Lizbeth, refused to leave town. She and her sister Emma bought a new house in a wealthier neighborhood, and uh, Lizbeth moved the fuck on. With a girl, apparently. Said girl was actress Nance O'Neill. O'Neill was married, but fellow thespians knew her true preferences, and it seemed that Lisbeth was smitten. She spent more and more time with Nance, doting on her, throwing her parties, showering her with attention and gifts. Emma Borden was much less enthused and repeatedly urged Lisbeth to knock it off. When the elder Borden refused, Emma took the advice of a local reverend and moved out of their shared home, Maplecroft. The sisters never spoke again, and a year later, Nance ended her relationship with Lisbeth. Over the next decade, Lisbeth Borden was alone in her big, beautiful house, constantly renovating it until her death from pneumonia in 1927. Her sister Emma died just nine days later in a random accident. But much like her story, Lisbeth lingers. The current owner of Maplecroft reports that he has seen her at the bedroom window, gazing out over Fall River like she's waiting for someone. And she's not the only woman still waiting for her girlfriend to come home. Before there was Stonewall, there was Maddie's. Maddie's in Mine Hill, New Jersey, that is. 
Originally built as a stagecoach stop and inn that catered to miners, miners with an E, these were people that worked in an iron mine. Not, Damn. They weren't, they could serve children back then, but that wasn't their target demographic. Well, now, <laughs> now my, my vision of the drunken daycare center is gone. You've ruined that for me. You've ruined this book. Good day. Stop trying. I to said good day. Stop <laughs> trying to send the, spread the dangerous myth that homosexuals give alcohol to children. I didn't think homosexuals had anything to do with it. I just thought they were cool adults. <laughs> you know that the, 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 the those that are against us are going to twist it. I, I know very little. Is... I know very little about those that are against you. <laughs> I, I know very little about it. What, how, why they think the way they do. Maybe that's my own that failing. Is... <laughs> okay, yes, we're talking about miners who work in the earth. Shut up. Okay. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to tell you to shut up. I respect you as a friend and colleague. Shut up. (laughs) Not you. Not you, Jay. I love you. You, Nick. Shut up. Originally built as a stagecoach stop and in that catered to iron miners. Dear God. This establishment has now seen business in three different centuries. In its early years, it was hardly less dangerous than the town's iron mines, and many a man met their end under its roof. Casualties of bar fights and petty squabbles that got out of hand. Now the image of it all being children is even funnier. I know, right? Toddler (laughs) combat. Oh my god. Watch Avenue 5. In the 20th century, its patrons shifted from miners to soldiers, either home on leave, about to ship out, or returning from the horror show that was the front lines of World War II. And in the 1960s, it was owned by Frank Bellini and his wife Madeline, who eventually employed a barmaid named Maureen Cavanaugh. Maddie and Maureen hit it off. Hell, they hit it off so well that Frank found himself written out of this progressive sitcom. <laughs> I hope his spinoff paid him better. It did not. Oh. Canceled after one season. No, just like Joey. Frank and Friends did not have an audience. (laughs) Frank and Friends. Word quickly spread of the bar owned by two women in love, and gay and lesbian customers replaced the long-gone soldiers and even longer and goner miners. (laughs) Yeah, they grew up. God damn it. (laughs) What have I done? Uh... While Maddie's could never be called classy, what with the adverts and notices papering the walls and the chalk signatures decorating the ceiling, it was a happy place, warm and welcoming and beloved by those who made it there. And as always, behind the bar, there was Maureen. She walked with a limp but stayed on her feet till closing, waiting on her customers and only occasionally stopping for a glass of her favorite whiskeys, Leishman's. As Ken Summers learned in the preface, however, nothing lasts forever. In 1993, Maureen died of natural causes in the third floor bedroom. She and Maddie had made their home above the bar, and it seems that in death, she did not wander much farther. Shortly after her passing, Maddie and an employee entered the empty bar to find a glass of Fleischmann's waiting on the counter, as if Maureen had set it down seconds ago before wandering off. In 2004, a new owner took over, and strange reports have persisted. Lights go on and off by themselves, cold spots border on commonplace, and more than one waitress has said they heard female screaming coming from empty rooms. Maybe it's Barine yelling for Maddie, or the echoes of Maddie, now gone too, mourning her lost love. 
Or maybe Maureen isn't the only woman still lingering there, waiting on a last call that isn't coming. Our next story is my second favorite in the entire book and takes place in the beating heart of my third favorite cult, Clearwater, Florida, a.k.a. where most of the Scientologists live. I'm alarmed that you have like a set ranking for cults. Yeah, I do. I'm not proud of the person I am. (laughs) (laughs) That was funny. Thank you. (laughs) And downtown Clearwater, we find the Royalty Theater, a movie house that currently sits empty. Empty of the living, anyway. It was originally constructed in 1920 by Senator John S. Taylor, of all fucking people, and hosted (laughs) vaudeville and other live performances before making the switch to film. Lack of business and, repeat, hurricane damage, eventually left it abandoned. But in the 1970s, a couple by the names of Bill Neville and Jerry Strain bought it. They hoped to renovate it, reopen it, and play movies from the golden age of Hollywood snatching at the magic that had faded in the wake of World War II and Vietnam. The venture failed within a year. But Bill still loved the old place and frequently broke in after it was bought by another company. Of course. (laughs) I mean... That's what I would do with my favorite abandoned theater. I mean, to be fair, it's their fault. They didn't change the locks. No. They knew he had a key. (laughs) They didn't change the locks. At that point, it's on them. No, I actually completely agree with Nick. It's still breaking and entering. I mean, to be Is fair, I, I probably actually shouldn't say that because my, when my brother uh, bought the house that uh, he's no longer living there, but my brother bought his last house like two weeks after he moved in, he came home and found out that the previous owner had just let himself in because he realized he forgot some stuff in a downstairs uh, closet. Yeah, that's yeah, it's still fucked up. Yeah. I mean, that's a house, though. This is a theater that nobody was in. Yeah, and also, you know, fuck the corporations. I mean, I agree with that. Anyway, Bill would wander around inside, trying to absorb the essence of the place, until one fateful night. Two drifters had come to town and lured Bill away from the brightly lit and crowded gay bars of the city. Promising sex if he went along with them, Bill brought them to his beloved theater, oblivious to their darker intentions. Originally, they simply intended to rob him, but things escalated. After beating him savagely and humiliating him, the two men tied Bill to one of the theater seats and left him there, driving around randomly and debating what to do with his valuables. Eventually, they returned, and one of the pair, by the name of Daryl Ward, stabbed him to death with a steak knife. After the crime was solved and the state of Florida had taken its pound of flesh, The theater reopened under new management, showing live performances once again. But still, nobody had confiscated Bill's key. Staff and actors hear phantom footsteps, disembodied voices, and odd noises they simply can't place. One manager watched a steel chair slam shut by itself. This same manager says that the activity eased for a while after he addressed Bill by name and expressed sorrow over his terrible fate. Others have seen Bill standing in the doorways of the theater, have witnessed lights going on and off by themselves, and on the stage, the ghostly outline of a knife has appeared in the wood. No amount of paint will cover it. It just comes back. And that's going to lead us into question two. Woo. In light of some of these stories, royalty theater in particular, 
what do you think is the bigger anchor to a location? A deep connection to it in life or a traumatic death on the grounds? So, um, I mean, the topic of anchors, I, I will admit, is a little confused for me just because the first time I encountered it was in the context of a role-playing game, and naturally that has warped my my perceptions of the entire topic. Um, that said, I have encountered it very sparingly in in the text we've read, uh, but it's something that, it, it's kind of like something, it's not even something that there's any grand theory about it. It's almost like it's something that's taken as a given in return in regards to ghosts. Yes, they're attached to this house. They're attached to this doll. And there's never, it's always very nebulous, like uh, how those attachments work, what their range is, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. So that said, I, if anchoring is a thing, if ghosts are, are truly tied to something here in the corporeal world, um, I really do think it, it is then going to depend upon the ghost uh, you know, looking at everything we've read, the, the 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 whole idea of the primacy of consciousness that comes up over and over and over again in the books we read, uh, the idea that we are actively shaping our reality, or that at least that our subjective experience is fundamentally the only uh, representation of reality we'll ever know, I feel like that has to continue on post-death, because that's the whole idea about ghosts, right? It's a continuation of your consciousness. So that it is the continuation of a subjective viewpoint I really do feel like uh, that how you viewed your life and maybe your death and what you deemed was important to you in those regards is what you're going to end up attached to. So one person who was brutally murdered in a location might say, yes, this was the thing that defined me, uh, was that I was murdered here. So this is where I'm going to stick around until I have vengeance. Whereas, uh, for example, the Lizzie Borden house, uh, a lot I've seen in a couple TV shows and such, they've mentioned that. Yeah, Liz, a lot. Some investigators don't think Lizzie is at the Lizzie Borden house. She's at Maplecroft. Lizbeth. Yeah, Lizbeth. And the and I, I mean, if for so for her, let's say she did kill the, her family. I don't know if that's true. No one does. She was acquitted. Yes, she was. So under the law, she's innocent. Uh, so let's say she did kill them, though. Now, so and then she went and had this life in Maplecroft. Well, to her. The latter was the more defining thing about her life and how she viewed herself. So that's where she ends up attached. That's how I would imagine it working. Um, that said, if we also go out to the topic of attachments, I mean, we, we can't really talk about attachments if we don't also bring up uh, stories of like, you know, cursed toys, things like that, more demonic type of activity, because that does seem to sometimes travel with certain objects. I don't know why. I don't know how that works. Uh, but so I I feel like that would have to be operating by some sort of different rule than simply what was important to me. Well, especially if it's demonic, in theory, they were never a human intelligence. So the rules wouldn't apply. Yeah. I, so I don't know what's going on there, but I think, generally speaking, it comes down to how you viewed your own life. Um, and, I, I, and, you know, we, we also often have talked about, you know, well, if, people can leave ghosts why aren't, aren't we completely overrun with them and i i sometimes wonder if it's well not most people don't uh define themselves so re so extremely by some external circumstance or external item or location or at least if they do they give up on that pretty quickly after death and they go on to what's next when, when you're no longer attached to things here you're no longer anchored uh you float up free 
And uh, at least I hope I hope that's how it works. I hope that like whenever an investigator has said go into the light, they're not just again sending the ghost into the soul shredder or something. Uh. <laughs> uh, I described a beautiful religious belief that my mother imparted on me in my childhood. And you were like, "That's horrifying." It is. <laughs> Welcome to heaven. Now get down the chute. Don't mind the bloodstains. Just get down in the shredder. I mean heaven. Same thing. No. <laughs> I think the answer to, to your question is both. I think either or could be, like Nick was saying, whether or not a deep connection in life or a traumatic death on the grounds is the bigger connection to the location. I think that that matters to the individual. Like, I think the, I think the Elizabeth Borden is a great example because the only time that we know of that Lisbeth has ever shown up, potentially, assuming that this is correct, on a EVP session or anything like that, was on a Kindred Spirits episode. And it wasn't at the murder house. It was at Maplecroft. And that's probably because even though the, the, like the, this event that made Lisbeth famous happened at the house... She herself had a bigger connection to Maplecroft. That was her attempt at, uh, like changing her, you know, uh, changing her image, you know, and separating herself from that. Which she really should have moved out of the town for, but whatever. Nonetheless, most of the most of the reports we have from like her contemporaries about why she didn't leave seems to boil down to spite. Yeah, I mean, I get that. I I get that. I feel like spite is part of why I were why I'm I've stayed in Michigan for as long as I have. I too have made many important life decisions based solely on spite. Um all of that being said, I've been thinking about the idea of ghosts a lot recently. And part of me wonders if the vast majority of what we see from ghosts has nothing to do with the actual spirit of the person being still here. Because I struggle to imagine outside of like the idea of being anchored behind in this world like that, right? Is why you would stay behind. But outside of that, because there's so many other incidents where we hear of ghosts of people who didn't necessarily have a traumatic life or, 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 a, or a traumatic death that are still around um, or seemingly still around. So it makes me wonder, like, well, why? And part of me thinks, that, thinks more and more that what we see or what we think are ghosts are imprints of that person left behind because of their because of their personal connection to that place. So we see things from we see or hear about Lisbeth Borden at Maplecroft not because she's still there, but because she loved that place so deeply as her own home and probably poured energy. We know that she poured energy into it because of all the renovations that she did. Um, and so there is an imprint of her still on the house, like, like a resonance that she built up. 
And then the more that people go there seeking it and putting more of their energy into it, it continues to enforce it and and build upon it. And it's like, it's not, it may not even actually be them anymore so much as just this buildup of energy that from, that started with them and is now just being built upon and, and almost escalated by everybody that's come after, which to me also would symbolize or would make would explain why we see so such dramatic differences from different people in say like the Velisca house, you know where you have one person that goes into the Velisca house and gets next to nothing, and then the next person goes into Velisca house. And, you know, they may have been wound up going in and now they're having a, a, a bad, a worse experience, you know, something like that. So, Rory, that, you know, that idea there just gave me a whole new crackpot theory. Cool. Uh, okay, so an idea that we've encountered again and again is the whole idea that time is an illusion. Uh, that the past, present, future, it's all happening right now. Every moment that has ever existed is occurring concurrently. I think I know where you're going at this, and this is all. And if it is, it's going to be wild because I probably have it written in my phone. So, what if, you know, what? All right. Now, then I was thinking about, you know, there's been people who say, well, we've caught an EVPs of ghosts asking for help or seemingly reliving a trauma. What if certain emotional events, be they positive or negative, are so powerful, um, I mean, we, we all have experienced this in our life, that they, they continue to live with you, right? I carry the traumas I've gone through every day of my life. They're still there in a, in a very real way. Uh, psychologically, for me, they're still happening. Yep. But what if metaphysically they're still happening? And what, you're, what those hauntings are is kind of the are situations where the emotion of a moment is so strong it's breaking out of its own kind of temporal bubble into the entirety of the timeline. So I wrote in my phone, sometimes I wonder if all hauntings and ghosts are just us seeing through the thin spots in time. If time isn't linear, maybe it's just glimpses of those other times where the extreme emotion is happening. Yeah. I, well, it, it, well, the other thing I was thinking about is... Though, I just think it's wild that, no, we, it is. That, that, again, we've come to like a very similar conclusion like that. But my thought, though, is, I mean, we have also, though, heard EVPs where, uh, I mean, I've heard of a couple where it's like the ghost is saying, you know, help, I'm, I, I'm stuck here, I can, I'm not allowed to leave. Yep. What if that is a vocalization of the fact that that person never resolved that trauma? What if it's an echo from when they when they were saying that at that moment in time back then and we're seeing and we're just hearing it now because like you said time isn't yeah. linear yeah no I, I it's fascinating i mean because again we have to anytime we're having these conversations i i like to try to remind myself to reassess the very basic assumptions we make uh and, and this comes up uh for example in some of tenny's lectures you know what is a ghost mm -hmm. uh, we we have a very we have a context we put the, a ghost story in. We put the word ghost into that is very limited. It is the spirit of a dead person who lingers here, usually that if, usually to finish unresolved business. Well, we have no reason truly to believe that that is the case over any, any other theory. We don't know what it is. Um, and, and so I, oh, I think that's, that's interesting. I think well, now granted there is, than the situations where it seems like the ghost is aware they're dead and enacting some form of agency, like what we see in some of the physical mediumship sessions we've uh, read about, or 
uh, situations where it seems like the haunting is interacting with a person. And I will need to think on it more to figure out how that could fit into the timey-wimey theory. Well, and I've I've been thinking about that too, like especially the idea of physical mediumship and how it seems like, <clears throat> you know, people are, are able to reach across the gauntlet, so to speak, to interact with them and bring them to this to this side. But we are making the assumption that the that these are ghosts or real people. We don't know. That's true. It could I mean it could even be Keel's ultra terrestrials. That's exactly what I was yeah. gonna say. What if it's just an ultra terrestrial or what if it's a fucking fay that is just utilizing our belief in ghosts to try and cross over this way? Yeah, I mean, if I was an interdimensional trickster god, I would definitely do that. Yep. Just this fae squatting in Elizabeth Borden's house and just being like, no one suspects a thing. Don't I, I be said, suspicious. Don't, don't be, be suspicious. I just got the image of like, uh, of like a red cap with you know the horrible <laughs> fat, the horrible twisted teeth and the uh the you know the blood soaked cap just walking around in like petticoats going I am a fancy lady I am a fancy lady <laughs> um so I actually personally think that it's the deep commo- that it's the deep emotional connection in life that is more likely to be the strong anchor um I I think that not just because of a bunch of the stories that we've read in here, I just vividly remember during one of my earliest forays into paranormal research, um I can't I cannot remember the name of the investigator or the name of the ghost, but she was it was just this investigator investigating a house in California just being like, I think I've finally nailed down the identity of who was haunting this house. Ah, uh, this was his childhood home. He loved it a lot. He always said that this was the only place that ever uh that he ever considered home. And the really significant thing is he died in New York and he's here haunting his house in California. Yeah. I mean I I, I can't guarantee, to be honest. I like if I died today, I can't guarantee I'd haunt this house. I haven't been here long enough. Uh I can think of many other places that I might go haunt. You know, especially because they might be more entertaining. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. What if, like, Disney World is secretly the most haunted place on Earth because ghosts are just like, yeah, it's it's more fun here. That's what all the cats, that's what all the feral cats at Disney World are actually for, is uh, is is to drive off spirit, the spirits of the unquiet dead. Turns out <laughs> the Haunted Mansion isn't even a ride. They just make you think it's a ride so they can cover up the haunting in plain sight. <laughs> There's so many new ghosts this year, and most of them are wearing modern clothes. <laughs> this has nothing to do with the pandemic. Get out. <laughs> <laughs> Why are so many of them rasping like that? <laughs> Here's some free Mickey ears. Get the fuck out. <laughs> <laughs> no one questions the mouse. I mean, we're questioning the mouse on air, so we're in trouble. I don't think Disney listens to our podcast. No, but some intern might. They're on to us. Take the shot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We feel like we're ready to move on. I am ready for part three. Woo! We go now to Savannah, Georgia, a city that many Americans believe to be the most haunted place in the United States. While I can't personally vouch for the accuracy of that statement, I can admit that the stories in this section are quite compelling. I've been there. It's creepy. It's really cool. People should go. Yeah? 
Yeah, no, it, it is it is one of those uh, cool old southern cities where every step you take, you feel like something historic or an atrocity happened there. Did you feel that more intensely in Savannah or in New Orleans? Savannah. Interesting. Uh, like, here's the thing. New Orleans, it, it it's definitely there, but it almost feels like there's a fresher coat of paint over it. Whereas Savannah, like there are just some some areas you look as like that has not been updated or touched in 200 years. Like you could just tell by the brickwork. Uh, it's and, a dusty city. Yeah. And also, I mean, it's a confusing city because it was built intentionally to make it difficult to invade so that it is basically a series of courtyards. Uh, and those courtyards like are not in straight lines. So it, it, it like lined up with each other. So it, it can be really confusing getting around. It's kind of this disorienting maze like atmosphere. Huh. Interesting. So for the purposes of this summary, I've selected my favorite story from this chapter, and that is about the Mercer Williams house. This large mansion originally began its construction in 1860, but was interrupted by the Civil War. You might have heard of it. <laughs> It was completed later as a family home and was handed off to different owners throughout the next century. By 1969, it was abandoned, decaying to bits, until it was purchased by a man called Jim Williams. Williams was enamored with the building and set out to restore it himself. Williams was an antique dealer from Gordon, Georgia, who made his fortune flipping Victorian homes and saving them from being torn down in the process. The largest of these was the Mercer House, as it was still called back then, where Williams was now making his home. Savannah High Society opened their doors for him, and his lavish Christmas parties were considered a highlight of the season. Quote, The preceding night was marked by a casual bachelors-only party, which was a far more secretive affair. Guests of the second party never spoke of the festivities. Much like Jim's private life, it was kept confidential. Jim's business, both literally and metaphorically, was his own business. The course of William's life shifted when he had a chance encounter with a troubled teen named Danny Hartsford. Danny had a history of violence and several stays at halfway houses and psychiatric hospitals under his belt. In addition to a pot habit that might make me cringe, he was also an alcoholic. I, I love how frequently you make it sound like you're a fucking chimney. I smoke a lot, dude. You pay taxes. You have a job. You're not high at work. You're doing fine. Yeah, but I smoke a lot, I have dude. known much, much worse potheads. I have been a worse pothead. Yes, you have. I used to go to work stoned all the time. I literally can't do that at my job. I would be caught immediately. I, I could probably get away with it, but I wouldn't ever I mean, even now, dream about it. Now that I'm working at home, I am distinctly aware that not only could I get away with it, it would be so easy. And because of that, I cannot allow myself to do it. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. It would start a habit that would eventually ruin me. Yeah. I'm just I just have this reoccurring nightmare of it's just like of just in the middle of a session, just one of my clients going, are you fucking stoned? <laughs> it's just like, ah, yes, Cheryl, I am. OK, <laughs> that's that said, imagine how much easier it'd be to get your clients to show up to meetings if you offered to smoke them down during the interview. We would do nothing productive. <laughs> I would that... just get them stoned and we wouldn't delve into any of the shit we're supposed to be delving into. I don't think that's entirely true. I think Listen. that I think that you would spend an hour and a half completely stoned out of your mind in the last half hour you would do the entire annual. <laughs> <laughs> 
listen, listen, listen. The world is not ready for stone psychiatry. No, no, it is not. And it should never be. <laughs> also, I'm not a psychiatrist. <laughs> Prior to meeting Williams, Danny was a con artist and a drug dealer, trying to support himself any way he could. Williams seemed to offer a more comfortable path. Seeing artistic talent in Danny, or so he claimed, Williams brought him into the Mercer house, and the two quickly became lovers. Williams, by Summers' account, spoiled Danny, showering him with gifts and trips and other luxuries. But that didn't soothe the hatred boiling inside Hartsford. Summers describes Danny as almost childlike, desperate for love but deeply damaged, swinging wildly between adoration and hatred. On one occasion, during an argument with Williams, Danny drew a gun and fired it into the bedroom floor. He then sprinted outside and continued firing into the air. As you do. Yep. I mean, I'm not saying I wouldn't do that if I had a gun and I owned the house I was in free and clear and no one was around to actually get hit by a bullet. Like, Elvis used to shoot at the TV in his old age when there was nothing good on, and I get it. Yeah, I, although I will say this. Don't shoot wildly into the air. You're making a very bad day for someone else down the line. Yes. Because those bullets do come back down. Yes, and they are still very capable of wounding people. Yeah, yeah there have been people who've died because of it. Yeah. Danny. <laughs> yeah, Danny. Jesus. The next time a gun went off in that house, it wasn't nearly so harmless. On May 2nd, 1981, the pair returned home from a movie, and Danny went into a tirade. Partly, it was paranoia fueled by the scary movie they'd just seen. Partly, he was furious that Williams was no longer taking him to Europe. Almost like smuggling pot across the international dateline is a bad idea, Danny! <laughs> After Williams threw him out, Danny returned with a German Luger, intending to shoot Williams dead. But he left the safety on and he cornered Williams in his office where his own gun was hidden in the desk and Williams did not take Kylie into being threatened. No. When police arrived, Danny was dead on the floor and Williams went on to be the only man in Georgian history to stand trial for the same murder four times. It was a long uphill battle against cultural homophobia. A string of overturned convictions and hung juries eventually drove the trial out of Savannah entirely, seeking a fresh jury pool. Finally, his self-defense story was believed and Williams was acquitted. In 1989, his infamous Christmas parties resumed. Not for long, though. In January of 1990, Williams dropped dead in his home. People talked as people are prone to doing, circulating rumors that Danny Hartsford had shambled out of his grave to seek revenge. These days, the mansion is known as the Mercer Williams House. Jim's sister still runs it as a museum, hosting tours. And Jim himself still lingers. His apparition has been seen wandering the halls of the massive house, and on several years, close to Christmas, passers-by see lights on inside and hear holiday music playing. Others have visited Danny's grave and have heard his voice there. Guess his invitations keep getting lost in the mail. And that's going to bring us on to question three. All right. So the idea of a ghost party has always fascinated me, and this is a great excuse to bite into the topic. If Williams is still hosting his famous soirees, who the hell are the guests? Are dozens of people trapped in the manor 
are they popping back just for the yearly get-together or secret third thing? I think thinking about what Nick mentioned earlier, that's something that's pretty common in a, in a Tenney lecture, the idea that if everybody left ghosts, there would be just a metric fuckload of ghosts, enough that would cover, there would be like six ghosts per like square foot or something of, of the earth. Like it's absolutely, of inhabited earth. Like it's absolutely ludicrous, right? Thinking about that, if even a small percentile of those are ghosts, wouldn't you want to go to a place where you know there's a ghost party? I mean, admittedly, if there was, if there, if after I die, if I become a ghost and I find out there are ghost parties, I'm, I know what I'm spending at least the first 20 years of my afterlife doing. Yeah. No. I'm going on the most epic bar crawl in history. That, that's, ex that's exactly my point. Like, if you're stuck here and you are able to leave, because I'm not entirely sure that, uh, being anchored to a location is a thing. Yeah. Um, I would leave. Yeah. I would seek out other ghosts and try to find the place to party because God knows I'm going to be fucking bored. So if I can go hang out with other ghosts from some, some queer guy throwing some badass party, I'm going to fucking go. Hell yes, I'm going to go. Especially with his secret pre-parties the <laughs> night before that people aren't allowed to talk about. Right. It's, um, like I, fight, I, it's like the fight club of parties. I know. I'm pretty sure that was an orgy. I think that was heavily implied. Okay, it was probably an orgy, but it also might have been cult shit. We it don't was, know. It was almost guaranteedly an orgy, but I'm not saying I would go, but I might check it out. <laughs> I'm dead. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that's fine. I, I'm not judging you if you want to get in on the orgy pit. Baby, You're... if you die before me, I, I give you permission to join ghost orgies until I too am dead. Sounds good. Yay. You can have the same permission. Yay. I didn't want to ask for it. That seems selfish, but thank you. <laughs> um, but like thinking about this, just the idea, it's like I there's like outside of just this, I absolutely think that if ghosts in the traditional sense are a thing, there's absolutely probably daily parties because God knows that there are tons and tons and tons of bored fucking ghosts. They're going to find any way to get fucked up and have fucked up ghost sex. Because <laughs> that's just, you know, you know that that's what's happening. Yeah, probably. So um, I think, are, are they, po I, but I also think to address one part of your question, I'm sure that if there is the ability, like thinking about Jenny Tyson's book, uh, where Ed, uh, Edward Kelly could seemingly go in and out, you yeah. know, uh, I'm sure that there are ghosts that would come back just to go to this yearly get together if it's as good as it as it's claimed to have been. And if you're still doing that shit in the afterlife, I bet you that there would be people that would go back and people who had never gone who would go because they heard about it in the go through the ghost vine. We we go and we like crash the Mercer Williams house ghost party, and we somehow are managed to actually like track and see all the ghosts that are there. It's like. Goddamn, every ghost that I mentioned this summary is here. Holy shit. <laughs> Who the fuck invited Elizabeth Bathory to a party? Who the fuck did that? Nobody invited Elizabeth Bathory. That's nope. a good point. That woman just shows up where she wants to be. Yeah. <laughs> She's just sitting in the corner eating strawberries and everyone else is just in the opposite corner staring crack-eyed at her. Yeah. Don't. 
Don't let her near Stacy. Don't move. Just her- don't let her near Stacy. Nobody move. Her vision is motion-based. <laughs> it is not, but still, don't move. Oh, I'm thinking of the T-Rex. Yes, you are confusing a Slovakian countess with a T-Rex again. Which we're also pretty sure is not true. Yeah, I know. Damn Michael Crichton leading me astray. <laughs> uh, I, sorry, were you done? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I like those ideas. Obviously, we don't know. I love pers- I'm tickled by the idea of ghosts holding a yearly soiree. Yeah. Especially because I've seen that house. It's awesome. I would love to attend a party there. Um, I did, for a brief moment there, have a horrifying thought of what if ghosts are like Casper and from the waist down, they're just a tail, in which case the ghost orgy is very strange. Stroke my tail. Um, (laughs) Beyond that... uh, What is happening to you today? I am in a very uh, manic mood. Uh, Other than that, I did have one kind of really sad thought of, okay, so what if William is there and the party people are hearing is not... William hanging out with a bunch of ghosts, but William manifesting what he misses in life because he's lonely on that day when he used to be surrounded by all of his closest friends. I don't like that. Yeah, I know. I I hate to bring the vibe down, but God, I mean, that is uh, because here's the thing is that, you know, you're right. We should have a world crawling with ghosts uh, if they are the spirits of the dead and everyone who dies leaves one. Uh, but what if, you know, the reason they're rare is because, I mean, really, the to get in that situation, you have to be pretty messed up in the head. You have to have a lot of unhealthy attachments. You have to have a lot of regrets. And so, you know, maybe there is no such thing as a, as a really a happy ghost. And when we think we're seeing that, what we're seeing is them uh, kind of manifesting happier times as a kind of as attempt of self-consoling or self-therapy. Uh or really just latching on to a good memory and being so unwilling to give it up that it's part of what keeps them there. Uh, which obviously I don't, I'd much prefer, I'd much prefer ghost Coke orgies. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, I can't get away from that thought because I mean, like I said, I, I don't hear often about EVPs coming out where it's like, you know, what, what keeps you here? Cause I'm comfy. Cause I'm in for the Coke. Because uh, because around Christmas Eve I'm gonna get blown, you know. Like I, there you don't hear very very often happy ghosts. They're very often uh, sound like they're in need or they're in pain or they're reliving some great trauma. Uh, and I I really hope that's not the case because obviously if they are if they exist and they are fully sentient beings like you and I, I don't want anyone to be trapped in that. Maybe that is what hell is. Is hell is when we uh, kind of refuse to give up on our attachments in this life, so we end up just reliving uh, portions of them or experiencing the same traumas over and over and over again. Uh, and I, I come back. I hope that's not the case, but uh, I don't know. When I hear about ghost party, that was where my that was where my mind went. So I actually personally think that, and this isn't necessarily based on. It's partially based on cultural evidence, and part of it is just based on what I think is the most entertaining option for me. Um, okay. <laughs> I, I, I am leaning towards maybe Jim is haunting that place year-round, but I think a lot of the other guests are just coming back to this side for the party. And I'm largely basing that off of ideas like uh, Dia de los Muertos and 
Sam and uh, Samhain and other similar kind of festivals found around the world of the idea of there is a period of the year where the veil the veil is thin or however we want to say that in the modern era and our loved ones from previous generations are able to come back and visit us and check on their hometown and check on their families and all of that jazz. So I'm perfectly willing to believe that Jim Williams has a bunch of friends that moved on to the other side and they're like, oh, of course we come back to Earth for the Christmas party. What the fuck are we doing in the afterlife around Christmas? Like, it's fine. <laughs> what, you think we're going to go to Jesus's birthday party? God, that guy's a downer. Oh, oh no, the he water. wasn't even born on Christmas. He has a drinking problem. Keeps turning all the water into wine. <laughs> and then if you reach for a cup, he slaps you and he growls. I don't, I don't know what's going on there. Um, okay. I don't know what they did to him on Earth, but it was dark. Um, <laughs> you know, that's fair. If anyone on Earth, if anyone on Earth in the afterlife deserves to have a drinking problem, Jesus is probably on the list. Yep, I'd give it to him. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I, I think that I don't think that there are dozens and dozens of people perpetually trapped in the mansion. And I don't think it's, I don't personally think it's one man generating an elaborate illusion. I think Jim Williams friends just come back around Christmas time because they really liked his parties when they were alive. And maybe it's just easier to get over here in December. I don't know. I don't know how ghost calendars work. Um, yeah, and I, I, I will say this. I like that more. I, I, I That's more comforting. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I hope that's the case. So, yeah, that's my personal assessment of my own question. Are we ready to move on to the next story, which is grimmer somehow? I yeah. mean, it's a story about death. Yeah. It's a book about death, fundamentally. So, yeah, it's going to be pretty grim. Hooray! I don't know why I cheered. <laughs> Georgia has no shortage of haunted mansions or haunted grounds where mansions used to sit. So we leave Savannah behind, turning instead to the outskirts of Somerville, where two men and their two innocent dogs met a terrible fate. The mansion, once built of brick and now mere crumbling ruins, was called Corpsewood, named for the dead trees that had surrounded the property on the couple's first winter there. The men in question were Dr. Charles Scudder, and Joseph Odom. Scudder was a professor of psychopharmacology, and Odom had spent years living with Scudder, helping him keep his house and raise his four children. They bought the property for Corpsewood in the 70s and built it over the course of two years. Part of the construction included a pink gargoyle over the second-story veranda and a three-story chicken house. The top room of this chicken house was dubbed the Pink Room and was a space set aside for socializing and sexual encounters with guests. Also living on the grounds were the pair's beloved pet mastiffs. I've said it before in this summary. Nothing lasts forever. In November of 1982, a 17-year-old boy named Kenneth Avery Brock moved in with a construction worker named Samuel Tony West. Brock knew Scudder and Odom, at least somewhat. He had befriended them while deer hunting, had drunk the homemade wine they brewed for the pink room, and may have had sex with them. Brock started filling West's head with stories of queer devil worshippers sitting on a massive fortune in the woods. Together, he and West hatched a plot to rob the couple blind. Brock spent weeks repeatedly returning to the house, allegedly having sex with Scudder and Odom, 
attempting to gain entry to the main manor to better plan the attack. Finally, on December 12th, West and Brock picked up two people, a couple named Joey Wells and Teresa Hudgens, and brought them along for some trashy-ass reason that's lost a fucking time at this point. The four of them got high on a mixture of paint thinner, alcohol, and glue, thoroughly out of their minds by the time they got to the pink room. Ah, uh, yes, the Tuesday special. It's, it's, I've, I've heard of people getting high off of all sorts of shit, but this is one of the things where it's like, how the fuck do you not cause immediate brain death? Like, I mean, they, they might, <laughs> they, they very well might have been causing some significant damage. I mean, it would explain some of the strings of decisions that we're about to get into here. You know, that is a good point. When I was reading this story, I, I, I it slipped my mind the fact that the people who were doing things in the story were high on glue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> After some idle socialization with Scudder, Brock retrieved his rifle and began threatening Scudder with it. Wells and Hudgens tried to flee, but for some reason, the car's engine wouldn't start, and instead of walking the fuck away, they went, oh shit, guess we gotta go back inside and be an audience to a bunch of homicides, lol. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking idiots. So anyway, Brock's not getting anywhere with Scudder. He knew that Odom was in the main manor house, so he left Wes to watch over Scudder and went hunting for his partner instead. In the kitchen, he found Odom and the Mastiffs and killed all three in quick succession. Obviously not satisfied with that, West and Brock forced Scudder out of the pink room and into the kitchen, forcing him to look at the destroyed remains of his family. Scudder was speechless, numb, and shell-shocked, and the night wasn't even over yet. West and Brock tied him up, and Brock attempted to kill him by shooting him in the face but his aim was as shitty as his ability to anticipate consequences, and Scudder survived the first bullet. The next three put him down, though, and West and Brock were finally free to collect their prize. Except all that bullshit about the men hoarding diamonds and fine art and race cars was just that. Bullshit. The men came away more or less empty-handed and were arrested for the crime very shortly after the fact. Confessions were made, but with a lot of, it's not my fault, thrown in. Brock continued to insist that Scudder and Odom were devil worshippers, and West maintained that he believed what Brock had told him. At trial, the defense tried to deflect blame, spitting some insane story about Scudder dosing his assailants with LSD. Apparently for fun. That's what I do. That's that's a Wednesday special. Yeah, but you're you. (laughs) And there was, of course, zero evidence for this, and the trial happened to occur on a day where the state of Georgia remembered that gay men are people, so both Brock and West are still serving life sentences. As I stated above, Corpsewood is no longer intact. Only pieces of the manor remain standing. Multiple fires that, according to one article I read, were definitely set deliberately— and vandalism from locals, driven by boredom and prejudice, had taken it apart. But ghosts don't need four walls and a soft bed. Ghosts only need a grudge. In the first weeks following the murders, investigators saw the early stirrings of a haunting. A sense of dread lingered over the place, as well as the creeping feeling of being watched. Despite the murders being confined to the kitchen, the reek of death followed them from room to room, like it was clinging to the clothes of someone they couldn't see. A few of the brave, 
or stupid souls that have ventured to Corpsewood have tried to bring home souvenirs in the form of stolen bricks or other pieces of the house. This has ended badly. Misfortune plagues them, bringing car wrecks, freak accidents, and sudden illness, which often persists and escalates until the object is returned. One man, who merely harvested some mountain thyme to replant in his own garden, wasn't free of the hex until he burned the plants. And the woods themselves are hardly quiet. Phantom gunshots, shattering glass, and disembodied screams echo through the branches, coming from nowhere. Shadows and faint apparitions that bear some resemblance to the long-dead couple dart through the shadows. And some visitors have reported seeing the eyes of Bezelzebub, one of Scudder's beloved mastiffs, glowing at them from the tree line. And you can still hear Scudder's harp playing late into the night. Which brings us to question four. In previous episodes, we've touched on the question of animal souls, and now we have this tale of animal hauntings. How would animal ghosts enrich or change your idea of the phenomenon? And do we think they linger for the same reasons people do, or for different reasons entirely? Well, as they are not people, I would assume that it's probably for different reasons. That being said, (laughs) where did I bury that bone? I wonder if, 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 like, thinking, I guess, in the traditional ghost sense, if animals are left behind, or if animal uh, ghosts stay behind, I wonder if it was in part, and I would only imagine this is kind of sad, that it's because they want to be with their people still. Because yeah. like in that this scenario, like regardless, they when when the the dogs died, they didn't know if their humans was alive or dead. So they probably would have come back to make sure that they could take care of their people. And it's making me very sad thinking about this, because like you know, there's the that I see that meme all the time or the the whatever. It's like you know to the to us, they are a part of our life, but to them, we are their entire life. You know, they are every, that we are everything to them. So if they are going to be, or if they stay behind, I imagine that the reason is likely for us. Excuse me, I need to go hug my pets. Yeah. And I, I think that there's validity to this only because there are times in my life in which, while she wasn't my cat specifically, um, the, this cat that I used to live with named Nitty, uh, I was her person. She chose me. And there are times in which I still think, like, I feel like she's around, you know? And there's no reason for her to come back other than every now and again she wants to check in on me, you know? And that's kind of uh, the long and short of it. I, I don't think that it would be for the same reason because our lives are very different. In our life, we have all these complications and things that we do, but in a, a pet's life, their, their job, their everything is us. 
So if there is a reason for them to come back and not just go hang out in doggy or kitty or reptile or bunny heaven, it's us, you know? Yeah. I mean, again, if, if ghosts are, uh, the tr- are what the tr- traditional uh, kind of context says they are, I, I, I agree. I don't know why else they'd linger. Um, I mean, that said, there could be things that are very important to them that we simply don't understand mm-hmm. uh, because we don't uh, have we don't have as much of an ability to really see the world through their eyes. Uh, so, yeah, if animals have souls and I like to think they do and they can leave ghosts, then, yeah, that makes sense. Um, if hauntings are resonance or uh, are like emotional resonance, well, animals certainly have emotions. Uh, you know, I Dang. challenge anyone who has a, a, a beloved pet to, to say otherwise. Uh, they, they're pretty actually, in my opinion, they're pretty open about their emotions compared to humans. Yeah. And uh, similarly, if hauntings are because all moments are happening at the same time, well, they're part of the moment. Uh, so that makes sense as well. I honestly, the question of how this does this, does the existence of animal ghosts change my view of the phenomenon? Uh, I think. If they were definitively proven to not exist, it would change my view of the phenomenon because I've at least kind of on an an intuitive, instinctual level, never really questioned that. Yeah, of course, there's animal ghosts that may that always made total sense to me. Now, that said, uh, I have recently kind of come to the had to kind of reckon with the fact that, well, I mean, I grew up with animals and I, I grew up in a in an animal loving home and that definitely has shaped my perceptions and i know that's not the case for everyone it's you know it's kind of one of those things where it is weird to me when i encounter someone who like has never didn't have pets growing up uh it just because i i can't imagine what my own childhood would have been like without my cats or the dogs i didn't have pets growing up i know it's, it's fucking weird uh i agree i mean i had lizards i had hamsters i had guinea pigs and many of them met horrid ends at the hands of the cats when they escaped but I tried my hardest to keep them all alive and happy and healthy. Yeah, I miss my guinea pig so much. I, I mean, and here's the thing: is I sometimes do wonder: is there is there like a bunch of ghost hamsters secretly running around my parents' house? Is that I what mean, Cheyenne was always so upset about? I mean, maybe. Oh God! <laughs> at any time you see a cat just staring in the corner, it's they're staring at like a ghost hamster that's just floating around right there. Uh, but no, I yeah, I so I I definitely think ghost animals are a thing, and I I will say this though, I don't think I've ever had an experience with one, save for one very vivid dream I had after uh one of my childhood cats Dakota passed. I had a very vivid dream of him kind of just laying in the bed with me, um, and I because I remember the dream was like vivid enough that I so he had these extra long fangs that per- actually protruded over his lower lip to a considerable degree. Yeah, and, but the thing is that when he purred, those fangs basically acted uh, a- a- acted like uh, ducks for his saliva to come out, and he would drool all over you the entire time he was purring. And that happened in the dream, and I very much, I, I had a very clear impression of kind of being grossed out but not wanting to move as he drooled all over my arm. And I don't have like I have vivid dreams, but I never really have positive uh, vivid dreams. So and that was one of the few. So I, I, I don't know if that was a visitation from my ghost cat um, or just my my grieving brain trying to give me some kind of solace. But uh, 
on the whole, I've never questioned if there could be ghost animals. It, it makes sense to me that if ghosts exist, there must be ghost animals. And, and part of this, I, I've never really seen, I, I've never really gotten the argument that humans are somehow a special in that regard, that we're somehow different from uh, the other creatures we share this planet with. Yes, we have certain advantages over them, but I mean, they th- they still have a subjective experience. They still have a spirit to them, I like to believe. So I, I don't, and I, I, don't, I, I do think that the idea that, that ghosts can't, that ghosts, animals can't be ghosts is rooted in a weird kind of species supremacy, which I've never understood. So I, I also feel like animal ghosts are real. I just don't, it, it, it's, it's just kind of one of those things where it's like, at what level does it stop? Like dog ghosts, cat ghosts, rabbit ghosts? Fish ghosts, spider ghosts, like you know, it just it, it it just starts to it just starts to get to the point where it's like, ha, huh, is every fly I kill because it's buzzing annoying me just just trapped forever in this house as a phantom, just being like, avenge me. Well, I, th- I think that's why like there, it would be different because like with a with a dog or a pet like that, they have their reason to come back would be would be us. But for something that may not have that same reasoning, they have no real reason to stay here. Well, yeah, and I mean, even biologically speaking, looking at the brains of insects or even many reptiles, they physically don't have the parts of the brain that process emotions. Right. Uh, or you know, they, they have a completely wildly different view of reality than we do and no. a completely different subjective experience. So it could just be that we don't see have ghost insects because they leave they're not you know yeah. that, that that shard of consciousness that little little insect soul whatever you want to call it uh it just it goes away immediately it has no reason to linger and maybe uh the reason that you mostly get human hauntings is we're the only species mentally ill enough to do this to ourselves over and over again yeah i promise you whales are just as capable of being mentally ill as we are oh so, my god um, ghost whales there are definitely ghost whales I I am no that is that is both uh one I mean cool I'd love to see a ghost whale but also that is a great premise for a horror movie like Moby Dick but a haunted ship <laughs> yeah, yeah like a like a ghost ship story but it's a ghost whale yeah or yeah oh I don't know though if it's a normal ship being attacked by a ghost whale or if it's a story of a ghost ship hunting a ghost whale. Or it's a sailor that hasn't set a former sailor that hasn't set foot on a ship in years and years, but the ghosts of the but the ghosts of the whales he illegally poached in his sailing days have followed him onto dry land. Uh, land whale coming land to theaters twenty twenty four. Then people show up to that and they're like, "Why is it a fucking ghost story? It's called Land Whale, and you lose millions." Or smash smash it. <laughs> I'm comfortable with both of these outcomes, especially because I will not be financing this film. I do not have that money. Fuck no. (laughs) But if you want to start a Kickstarter for us, if you get the money, we'll do it. Putting that out there. And also, if I got like definitive proof of animal hauntings, I would swing even harder on board to reincarnation is is definitely a thing. Like I, I, I can't fully articulate my reasonings why, 
But I feel like if I got unequivocal proof of like, no, animals are just as capable of leaving ghosts behind as humans. I'm like, okay, that has to be proof to me that our souls are made out of similar enough stuff that uh, that that would I would end up just adding that to the pile of evidence for reincarnation being the default option for most living things. Yeah, I mean, I I could see that. I uh, well, like I said, I for me, I've never fully. I mean, obviously, I see differences between the human species and other species. I'm not blind, but I I guess on a deeper kind of spiritual level, soul level, I mean, it's another living thing that is trying to uh, trying to exist and trying to survive i don't on a very fundamental level there is a very basic kind of bedrock of commonality between all living things on the planet and yep and i think ignoring that is a massive disservice yep we're all made out of carbon and water like at the end of the day we are all meat puppets yep Mm -hmm. and i just i i wouldn't it, it I'm trying to, I'm, okay, like, I just, I feel like if reincarnation wasn't the default option, there would be no reason for our souls and animal souls to be made out of the same stuff, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I get it. Because it just, it, it's just kind of like, you know, if it's like, like having almost like a universal battery or a universal fuel. Um, so yeah, I, uh, yeah, that's, that's my answer to my own question. Are we ready to move on to section five? Part five, the final stretch. Let's go. Yep. Ah. Our last two stories take place outside of the United States and are both far older than our previous tales. We venture next to Scarborough, England to visit the castle that shares its name. Scarborough Castle has been standing since the 1130s and survived the English Civil War in the 1640s. It is also the place where a love affair between a king and his favorite knight came to an untimely end. It began when Edward II was still a prince, and when both men were still just boys. Piers Gaveston, I'm probably butchering that name because it's very French, but that's how I'm saying it. Piers Gaveston was of much lower birth than his friend Prince Edward, but that did not stop the crown prince from doting on him. Quite openly, in fact, to the point where the king, Edward I, grew rather tired of it. One bishop even had a private meeting with the king, where he supposedly provided some confirmation that the bond had grown romantic. As the rumors mounted, the gifts his son was giving to the knight were growing more and more extravagant, culminating in a bitter fight between father and son. Edward I called his heir a son of a whore, made idle threats to disinherit him, tore out his hair in clumps, and kicked him until he was bruised and bloody. Despite his son's weeping, he banished peers from the kingdom. On his deathbed, he pleaded with his son to not bring the knight back. Edward II waited about ten minutes after his father was dead to bring his boyfriend back and name him Earl of Cornwall. Fuck yeah, Edward II. <laughs> he also arrested that rat bishop and gave all his shit to peers, and despite getting married to Isabella of France to make people think he wasn't fucking Gavston, he proceeded to give all of their wedding gifts to him as well. Yeah, yeah, here's the thing. It's like this story in particular, I was sitting there was like, yeah, okay, I get it. Yeah, you you had so- the person that you really wanted to be with and society was forced to be with someone else. But given you knew the consequences, maybe you should have been done this a little more slyly. 
Also, I kind of feel bad for the girl he married. Uh, Isabella of France got kind of a raw deal. Yeah, I mean, because she didn't ask for this. I mean, it's not her fault. Yeah, and she and Piers did not like each other very much. Yeah, uh, that'd be a very frustrating situation to be in. Yeah, especially because, again, she was like an actual French princess, and this guy was, uh, from what I can tell, this guy was not of much higher birth than Kristen Cole on House of the Dragon. So, yeah. 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 To, Actually, to... you know, it's funny, now that you say it, I do. I realize, I think I was picturing Sir Kristen Cole the entire time I was reading this story. I, I don't fault you for that. Uh, that I mean, uh, partially because... Personally, story aside, I kind of thought Gaston was kind of came off as a big giant douche. It's Gaston was a little spoiled, but um, yeah, he just seemed like a jerk. The English nobility was no happier about this than Edward I had been, and for a time, Piers was stashed away at Scarborough Castle, away from the public and the plotting. When visib- when visiting nobility was out strolling along the curtain wall at night. Peers would jump out from the shadows to scare, shove, or kick them before darting away again. You see? A jerk. <laughs> it is said that he enjoyed his time there, finding it more like a playground than a prison. But this is a ghost story, so somebody has to die. After several attempts by the nobility to rid the court of peers, a full-out army was raised over the issue. England was seriously considering war over who their king was sleeping with. After a failed attempt on their lives by the Earl of Lancaster, they were separated, with Piers fleeing south while Edward tried to rally his own supporters. Piers was captured by, and executed on the orders of, the Earl of Warwick, who had him bound to a mule and dragged outside of town. Ignoring the man's desperate pleas, the Earl's mob beheaded him, and his head was raised on a spike. As Edward mourned his lost love, Piers' soul was making the long trek home. Piers Gaveston died in 1312, but what ghost was ever daunted by time? To this day, two very different sides of Piers haunt Scarborough Castle, his last sanctuary. One is the playful trickster, shoving or tapping guests that take walks in the curtain wall. His phantom footsteps patter through the dark, always just out of sight, as if the night is still playing tag with his visitors. The other Piers is not so jovial. This one stalks those who wander the grounds at night and now and then makes itself visible. His headless, bloody corpse has been seen shuffling around the grounds, sometimes accompanied by his own severed head, which moves by biting the earth and dragging itself forward with its teeth. Yeah, fuck yeah. Metal. (laughs) The gruesome twosome are known to chase guests towards the cliffs as if attempting to drive them over the edge and into the deadly waters. Has anyone tried to kick the head like a soccer ball? I'm not going near the head. I think I'd try to kick the head like a soccer ball. You know what I would do if I saw that? I would leave England and not come back. <laughs> oh, that's fair. I might just leave the country. I would just be like, that, that, that's the most fucked up ghost shit I've read in a long time. You know, it's funny. It is very, uh, it's, it's indicative not of like European hauntings, but that sounds like something out of Japanese hauntings. Yeah. That you'd hear, uh, that you'd hear, especially from an Asian country. Yeah. Yeah, and it weirdly makes me almost more, that kind of factor and just how extreme this is actually makes me more inclined to believe some of the people that have said they they saw this, because this doesn't seem like something that a lot of people would just independently make up, you know? Yeah, yeah, it it is just weird and freaky enough. 
Yeah. Ugh. Speaking of weird and freaky enough, we leave England behind for Slovakia to pay homage to Europe's most infamous female serial killer. Ken Summers' last tale of terror takes place at Katish Castle, or what's left of it anyway. Like Corpsewood Manor, time and angry hands have ripped it to bits, leaving gaping holes in the edifice. Holes that continue to leak bad mojo into the air, for this was the home, lair, and hunting grounds of Countess Elizabeth Bathory. Beloved daughter of one of the wealthiest families in all of Eastern Europe, Elizabeth's life has always been layered in mystery and drama. One uncle was an alchemist and a devil worshiper. Her beloved Aunt Clara was a witch and rumored by many to be a lesbian, which back then was almost as bad as being a witch and for some people was the same thing. Some sources insist that she and Elizabeth had an affair, though this has never been substantiated. What is substantiated was Elizabeth's temper. Described as vain and spoiled, Elizabeth was prone to violent tantrums, and even her own family found her manipulative. At the age of 11, she was engaged to the somewhat dim-witted but athletically gifted Count Frank Nadasti. Frank Nadasti. Frank Nadasti. Frank Nasty. Let's continue with the ballad of Frank Nasty. No! After their marriage, he took her dark temper and fostered it into a true taste for horror. At Katish Castle, she learned the joys of stripping servant girls nude and marching them out into the winter snows, where they'd be doused in cold water until they died of shock. Other servants would be smeared with honey and tied to trees, where they'd be left to the mercy of the insects and the elements. She also dove into witchcraft. Her beloved husband was known to send her foreign spells while out traveling with the Hungarian army. At the age of 44, an unhealed battle wound claimed her husband's life, and her sadism ratcheted up several notches. While the rumors of bathing in blood to preserve her beauty are verified horseshit, that doesn't mean every rumor was. Aided by her suspected lover, Anna Darvulia, Elizabeth and a small band of loyal servants subjected the castle staff to beatings and ritualistic cuttings and had their flesh repeatedly burned. She may even have actually used an iron maiden. Testimonies of her accomplices described a booby-trapped necklace around the device's neck. It would slam closed if the jewels were disturbed. After the death of Anna Darvulia, Elizabeth once again grew even worse. A widow named Ezra Majorova took Anna's place as Elizabeth's favorite and lover. It seems that it was her who encouraged Elizabeth to look beyond her servants and the peasants of Katish, and instead to girls of noble birth. Despite the risks that this posed to her entire operation, Elizabeth agreed and began bringing highborn girls into her home. She claimed she was teaching them etiquette so they could behave in a manner befitting their station. In reality, all or most died in her dungeons, screaming. But the crown cares a lot more when it's noble blood being spilled and somebody's mom finally blew the whistle. King Matthias, who was desperate to get out of a massive debt that the crown owed the Bathories, sent an investigation team. By which I mean he rounded up a bunch of dudes and had them break into Katish Castle. Once inside, they found bloodstains, poorly hidden corpses, and a few victims still clinging to life in Elizabeth's torture rooms. Girls had been chained to the walls or kept in small cages. The stench of death filled every room of the wretched place. Elizabeth was thrown under house arrest and remained there for the rest of her life. 
Matthias had her sealed into a single room of her tower with only a small slot for ventilation and feeding. It was in that room, alone and despised, that Elizabeth died. Some accounts put it down as natural causes. Others claim she had been refusing meals and starved herself to death. In death, she freely roams the castle, the walls of her prison torn down to retrieve her body. It is said that one final curse was found written out beside her corpse. Help me, O clouds. O clouds, stay by me. Let no harm come to me. Let me remain healthy and invincible. Send, O send, you powerful clouds, ninety cats. I command you, O king of the cats, I pray you, may you gather them together, even if you are in the mountains, or on the waters, or on the roofs, or on the other side of the ocean. May these ninety cats appear to tear and destroy the hearts of kings and princes, and in the same way, the hearts of teachers and judges, so they shall harm me not. Holy Trinity, protect me. After Elizabeth's death, Katish Castle was still used as a prison, a brutal one at that. But the residents of Katish said that not every scream that made it down the hill came from the living. To them, Elizabeth's bloodshed had cursed the place down to its foundations. And perhaps they're right. Shadows roam the halls at night, faceless, never moving. No more prisoners reside at the crumbling castle, but still their screams can be heard echoing off the stones and the place still stinks of death centuries later. Elizabeth herself has been glimpsed wandering the dungeons and towers. Perhaps she's still torturing her victims, or perhaps they're torturing her. And that's going to bring us to our very last question of the evening. All right. What privacy do we owe the dead? How do we approach this topic and other similar topics such as true crime or any related issues without being voyeuristic or exploitative, particularly with gruesome stories like the deaths of Bathory's victims and the murders of Corpsewood Manor and the death of Bob Neville? I mean, this is a this is a tough question, uh, and I, I actually spent a good amount of time today thinking about it. Uh and I mean, because I, I do believe, well, I mean, if if the dead are a continuation of the individual subjective consciousness, then realistically, they have all the same rights to privacy and agency that the living do. That said, uh, history should be known for a reason. It, it, it gives us context for our own stories. And also it helps us remember how far we've come and how far we still have to go. It, it, it's warnings, you know, like we, we say, all right, well, these horrible things happen in the past. What can we do to make sure they don't happen in the future? If we say, well, the, the perpetrator and the victims have their privacy, we should never discuss it. That's just sticking your head in the sand. I So I feel like it's important to know history. Um, it's, I, I think really the difference is when I think it's OK to start digging into these sorts of secrets and making them public when. There is no one else around who, who was, was alive when it was happening. You know, when that when you've gone far enough from the event that you're not going to be causing real appreciable harm to the uh, to anyone who's alive. Because at the same because ultimately I can't know how the dead feel about it. They're, at least not right now. We haven't found a reliable way to talk to them. Uh, maybe someday in the future, ghosts will be able to take us to court over airing their dirty laundry. But we're not right there right now, and we don't even know what a ghost is. Um, 
I, I, I think that generally speaking, another big part of it comes down to how you're treating it. Uh, for example, the, the Elizabeth Bathory story. I mean, I think Ken Summers did a pretty good job of stressing the horror that was done to these peasant girls, to these uh, to these various women who were brought into the home of this megalomaniacal sadist. Um, if this was framed in a different way, like, oh, let's check out how sexy Elizabeth Bathory was. Yeah, that's fucked up. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, it comes down to how you approach it. If you're coming at the story to say this is something that happened and maybe we can learn something about the abuse of power or a reminder of why we don't live in a feudal, feudalistic society like that anymore, um, then, you know, that serves a purpose. It, it also, it's important to, say, remember the victims. They lived. While they, we may never know their names because, well, quite frankly, at the time, if you weren't noble, no one knew your name pretty much because no one ever wrote about you. Um, the, the fact is, that is the, the best way we have of honoring their memory and of what happened to them. Uh, I think it gets a little stickier when we're talking about true crime, and I don't know why in my brain there's such a distinction between the two, but I think it's probably because typically true crime is dealing with more recent events, uh, whereas a lot of hauntings, especially in Europe, are ancient comparatively i mean because I, I the further you get from the death i guess the less uh gruesome it becomes and the more oh not, not statistical uh the more story it becomes the happening truth falls away and the story truth becomes the the primary narrative by which you interact with the story hmm. yeah how much privacy do we owe the dead if they ain't bothering us then realistically we shouldn't bother them that being said we're gonna because unfortunately the vast majority of us myself included can't help ourselves it's this weird it's because Everything to deal with that deals with ghosts and all of this is so unknown. We don't know why, if, or what is even happening. So we can't help ourselves but try to interject ourselves with whatever form of life it is that, they're, that they have, that they're, that they're doing. But if, let's say... Lisbeth Borden, to go back to that one, is still around here. I think she made it perfectly clear in life that she has no interest in talking about these things. And in fact, the only time, again, that we've ever gotten or seem to have gotten an EVP that may or may not have come from Lisbeth, they didn't talk about it at all. Yep. And you want to know the biggest difference that was noticed between when they got a reaction and didn't, when they actually called her Lisbeth. Yep. Also, if I remember correctly, because uh, you're, you're talking about the Kindred Spirits episode at at the uh, at Maplecroft at Maplecroft, right? Yes. Well, so uh, if I remember correctly, it's also wasn't the didn't the question have nothing to do with the actual murders? It was more about what they her didn't talk about them at all. Yeah, that that's yeah. Sorry, that's that's the point you were making earlier. Yeah. So I think that there is a, it, you know, if, you know, again, if this is all to be true in the traditional sense of what we think ghosts are, then going up to them 
and saying things like, how did you die? Or are you still here? Like, would you respond to that shit? Who starts a conversation like that? I just sat down. Right. <laughs> so I think th- I I think it's like it's almost like if we are going to be intrusive on their unlife then at least we should be respectful. Show up, br- you know, bring a bunt cake. <laughs> sit down, offer them a slice. I wonder how Miss Borden would react if we went to Maplecroft and we didn't ask her questions about what happened to her family. We just asked her questions about Nance. I mean, that's actually a really interesting idea. And actually, now I'm, I really do like the idea of literally bringing baked goods to an investigation to offer the spirits. I mean, that's been a thing in the vast majority of cultures is when you're attempting to commune with the dead, you should be giving them an offering. And those offerings are usually supposed to be food. Yep. I mean, same with the Fae. I yep. think that's also true of the living. Yeah. People, people tend to be friendlier when they have a brownie in their mouth. Yes. Yes. Can confirm. But, like, I mean, realistically, I think the answer is we should, if they were people, treat them like people, right? Uh, Amy Bruni said it in her book, Ghosts Are People Too. And I think that's something that we should try to hold on to when we're trying to communicate with them because ultimately, by going in there and, like, Zach bagging, bagging said it, and just yelling at everything, we're not going to get anywhere. Which is part of why, even though I, I, it's part of why I can't really watch the Watcher show anymore. Like, I don't like how disrespectful Shane is in that show. Yeah. Oh, okay. You're, I thought you were talking about the new uh, horror show people are talking about, The Watcher. No, I want to watch that. I haven't watched. Yeah, we, I, I was very confused for a second. You're talking about the, what, what are they calling it? Ghost Files? Yeah, the new BuzzFeed Unsolved show or whatever. The, go, the same guys, different company. Yeah, their own company. But that's why I can't watch that show because Shane is kind of an asshole to every ghost. Yeah. Because he doesn't, he doesn't believe in that stuff, so he doesn't think that he doesn't think that what he's doing is intrinsically wrong. But when you inhabit our sphere of reality, it is it. It's kind of a. It's at least a moderately shitty thing to be doing. Yeah, I mean, would you like it if uh, somebody decided they didn't believe in you and just decided to come in and just yell at you the entire time? I'd hit them. Exactly. Like I would. I would hate it too. And I sure as shit wouldn't show myself to them. I mean, I, I could say that I'm a spiteful enough person that I might, just for the sake of, I'm going to fuck up your worldview. Yeah. I mean, I would like to imagine that I would, but how much energy does it take to do that? And do they deserve it? And does it even work on someone who's as much of a non-believer as Shane is? Because we have to go back to that idea, too. The doubting Thomas, though. Well, and, yep. I mean, well, and also, beyond that, I mean, the whole idea that every aspect of the phenomenon is a participatory experience. Right. Annabelle uh, almost got him when they were back on BuzzFeed Unsolved because she because uh, remember the flashlights were, were going on and off mm-hmm. when he was alone with the Annabelle doll and he actually like froze and was staring at it for a few seconds trying to figure out what the fuck had happened. Mm-hmm. That was fun because he doesn't talk about that investigation anymore. Nope. Yeah, I, I, I it's a complex issue. I mean, especially because we still can't agree on as a people how much privacy we owe the living. Right. Especially in this modern social media age. I mean, there's this 
almost kind of belief, especially regarding celebrities, that we are people are somehow entitled to know everything about this person's someone's personal life. And not just that, but we're entitled to make judgments about it. And I mean, yes, there are certain things where I feel cool, like I'm making judgments about it. If I find out in secret, you're, for example, torturing and murdering hundreds of peasant girls. I, you know, I think we, we can judge you for it. But if it's not hurting someone and you don't want it to be in the public sphere, it's no one's business. They don't have a right to it. Multiple queer celebrities over the last three years have come out and then stated afterwards that they felt more or less uh, forced into it by their fans who would not leave them alone about it. And uh, we're basically like, uh, I not not to participate in the fact that this was done to her. Kristen Stewart was essentially mass stalked by the public until she admitted that she's bisexual because people were spying on her in her house with her fucking girlfriend before she was ready to come out. Yeah. And that it's just madness. It it. It, it like there's no other way to put it. it personally, I, I see it as a form of intense mental illness that we have on a societal level. Oh, yeah. Well, and I mean, I can't even say I'm completely immune to it in the sense that like there are certain celebrities. I just, you know, I, I take an interest in what's happening with them, not because I care too much, but like, uh, for example, certain authors would be like, oh, they got married. And then I'm sitting there's like, why do I know that? Like, why do I need to know that? Why am I pleased that I have that information now? I think it's something that maybe even culturally is baked into us. It, it in some ways it is. Like, I've heard more than one people, more than one person say that on a sociological level in America, our celebrities and our socialites are now occupying the social role that our royal families were occupying before us, and that that's why Americans are like that about actors and singers and that stuff is it's it's almost like we're filling a void like we don't have royals to gossip about so we invented the fucking kardashians well i mean also i i almost also sometimes wonder if they for for people who are uh kind of secular in their day-to-day if they fill the role of the kind of the divine you reach for they are these idealized forms, much like um, much like, you know, it seems like a, a certain pantheons reviewed. Uh, the Greek gods are idealized for idealized versions of human forms, often when they're presented. And very often, I mean, celebrities kind of provide that sort of unreal, uh, hyper exaggerated image of perfected humanity. I I you're you're not wrong from my from my semi-professional observations, you're not wrong. <laughs> cool, I did a thing. Um, and as for my own personal thoughts on this, um, with, with, with paranormal hauntings, it's, like, like Nick said, especially really old ones like Bathory and the Gavston-Edward II thing. Like, Piers Gavston and Edward II, y'all made your shit public. Y'all almost started a fucking civil war with how public you were being about their shit. So I don't think those two would care at this point. Yeah. Um, and like you said, Bathory kind of signed away lots of her rights to privacy when she, you know, murdered acres and acres of people. The, uh, the, the right that the, the victims have to have their story told supersedes her right to keep her horrible crimes private. And 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 that and that thing you said about a, 
about learning from history. I, I was trying to tell, I was trying to explain this. I've tried to explain this to a few people before that weirdly part of my obsession with true crime is, is this weird idea I have that it's like the person that went through this horror shouldn't be the only one who has to know that this happened to them. It's almost like this bear witness kind of compulsion of it's like, no, I, I need to look at this because somebody needs to look at this and somebody needs to carry this around and remember that it happened and feel deep seething rage and existential sorrow over it. And I don't know if that's a fucked up cognitive distortion I have or not. It probably is. I mean, I get it. I, I, I don't again, I don't know if it's healthy, I, but I totally get it. I, I, there are certain things that I certainly carry around for people I've, you know, emotional baggage I carry around concerning people I've never met, never could have met that lived entirely different times than me. But hearing their story caused an emotional reaction, even in some cases, a change within myself. And that, I don't know, there is something to be said about the fact that we are constantly, uh, being molded by the people we encounter, both those we encounter in life and those whose stories we encounter. I mean, I, I'm, I, I talk all the time about the power of stories and that I think that they are a fundamental shaping element to, I mean, maybe on a metaphysical level to existence, but on, at the very least at a psychological level to who we are, the stories we ingest, uh, shape very much of how we view the world and how we interact with the world. And they also give us kind of, uh, they give us the images of who we can aspire to be, uh, you know, cause where would we be if we didn't have stories of heroes, if we didn't have stories of people who did do the right thing, even though it was really hard or the people who you know, did suffer at the hands of someone who is committing true evil. We need to know those things exist because we need to know that those capacities also exist within us. And that's the only way we're going to come to a better understanding of ourselves, not only as an individual, but as a species. And I, I think that might be the only way we're going to evolve past the, uh, the need uh, well, not the need, but past the phenomenon of having some of us be horrid, psychotic, raving horror movie monsters. And and as for the, the 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 second part of my own question about like how do we do this without being voyeuristic and exploitative and with with, with the true crime in particular, I I recently started to come to the conclusion that it it might be possible that there's no way to do things like this or some of the more gruesome paranormal stories like again uh Neville and what Bathory put her victims through and what happened at Corpsewood that might always be intrinsically a bit voyeuristic and exploitative but I don't I'm not sure that that's necessarily always intrinsically enough of a reason to stop doing something entirely of I, I feel like on some level it's impossible to live a completely non-shitty existence if that makes sense of like there no one's ever going to be perfect and we're all going to do kind of fucked up things now and then and I feel like with things like this if you are at least doing your best to approach it respectfully and you're kind of trying to minimize the shitty aspects of it and like and 
like with 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 some of the like again with with what happened with Jim Williams and with what happened at Corpsewood much like with my with my non-paranormal true crime obsession I try to take lessons from this about just like this is how deeply broken our justice system is this is how this these are the extremes to which people can be driven by prejudice and greed or just unhinged emotions and unchecked mental health imbalances it's like i can't i can't help that i'm interested in dark shit i can't help that i get a dopamine hit from reading about this gruesome crap i i can't help the fact that i gain a weird messed up version of catharsis from some of these stories and much like a lot of my other bad habits or questionable, or at least maybe not bad, but questionable habits, maybe the key is to stop wasting a bunch of energy desperately trying to fight against it and overcome it and focus more on like, can I turn this into something good? Can I make crap into fertilizer and just accept that there are there are odd little quirks about me that I can't necessarily change and can I turn those into positives? Yeah, no, and I, 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 I agree. I think, uh, for example, I, I ingest so much horror, and to some people, that's uh, a moral failing, you know, because I'm, I'm bur- taking delight in uh, you know, the horrible things that happen to these fictional characters, and I can't even, I can't even fight that because I totally, well, watching a horror movie, if there's a, a particularly gruesome kill, there's a part of me that goes, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. like earlier, the, the head dragging itself by its teeth, that's so fucking cool, um. I can't help that, but that doesn't, it's that to me, that is, that's part of being human. We all have those dark impulses and there are healthy ways to express them. And then there's Bathory. Yep. Yep. That's not what the, it's not what the impulse is. It's what you do with it. No, I, yeah, I, 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 I agree. Like, it's just, it's, it's, I think it's about, I, I think it's largely about channeling and I also Obviously, everyone should be doing their best to try and live their life as as well and as much of a good person as possible. But I also think in in modern day Americans, especially, there is a tendency to succumb to imaginary guilt and uh, attempt to flagellate yourself before the public uh, to try and cleanse yourself of these sins that aren't actually that big of a deal. Yeah. Like, like, I feel like we've lost perspective on what actually makes someone a a shitty harmful person at times because we're we're undergoing a massive cultural upheaval and I think we're all kind of lost and confused and I think I think some people are just being way too hard on themselves and it leads to them being way too hard on other people. Yeah, I that's interesting. I think there's probably some there's, there's likely some truth there. All right, was that was that it? I, I, that's it. That was our last question. Well, actually, I realized something. So we usually do this at the beginning of the episode. What'd you guys actually just think about the book? Oh, that was all right. Yeah. Like, here's the thing is I would recommend this book if someone was like planning a haunted gay road trip. (laughs) Yeah. Because it does a great job being like, here is a location. Here is the history. Here is a paragraph about the haunting, which actually, that was my biggest complaint is it says queer hauntings. I think it should be called queer history because it was more. Most of each chapter was the history, and then there was a snippet at the end about the haunting effects that were being reported. That was my my own pet peeve about it. But that said, 
I thought he he was a pretty clear writer. I thought that he had some very evocative passages where it was very beautifully written. Um, I just wanted more meat in the ghost part. Yeah, I I liked the book. I thought it was I thought it was quite I thought it was I thought it was a really nice, charming book. And I think that I, this this is a really great kind of primer of some forgotten queer history or just really interesting queer historical figures that you might not have heard about before or figures you have heard about before where you were just like where it's just like hey fun fact did you know they were gay (laughs) (laughs) um but i i think the main thing is like i was i was the one in charge of writing this summary obviously and anthology books like this don't always lend themselves super well to the types of summaries and discussions we specialize in here So that kind of also casts a lens over how I was engaging with the book of it's like my frustrations had nothing to do with the contents of the book. My frustrations had entirely to do with a summary that was due in 36 hours. (laughs) (laughs) And and that's fair. I mean, we we certainly always need to remember the very, very particular context we bring to the books we're we're reading because. I mean, I can't help it either. When I'm reading a book, I totally am thinking about how the hell am I going to present this on the show? All right, so we're ready to move to the About the Author? About the Author. All right, well, we only have a little bit because Ken Summers has kept most of his personal life off the internet. Good for him. At least I think so. I didn't look at social media because I don't do that. So, Ken Summers is a paranormal investigator, blogger, columnist, lecturer, and writer. His work has been featured in Edge, New York, the Akron Beacon Journal, and the Cleveland Scene Magazine. He's also published several articles on the Newkirk's website, Week and Weird. He maintains the Moonspenders.com website where he continues to chronicle strange events at the intersection of the paranormal and the queer community, including not only ghosts, but UFOs and the occult. He is currently working on a sequel book, which will expand its focus beyond ghosts to encompass other elements of the paranormal, and this project is, as far as I can tell, still underway. He also contributed to and edited Haunted Akron, an exploration of the hauntings in Akron, Ohio by Jerry Holland. And he currently resides in Northeast Ohio. And that is all I could find off of Google. I think that's it. Wow. That was fast. Yeah. All right. So uh, what do we have coming up next? Well, first, it's housekeeping. All right. Housekeeping. So if you liked what you heard, please like and subscribe on whatever podcasting platform it is that you are listening to us on. And if it's Apple or Spotify, please leave us a review. Five stars preferred, but not required. And uh, then if you want to reach out to us with any book suggestions or general commentary, swear words of any random sort, you can do that at noctivigantpodcast at gmail.com or on social media at noctivigantpod on Twitter. And I'm at Wicks. I am at Bearish Terror. I'm at Midwest Undead. And we have a plethora of other social medias like an Instagram, noctivigant underscore podcast. We have a Reddit account, Noctivigant Podcast. And we even have a Tumblr, Noctivigant Podcast. But I think that is it. So what are we doing next? Well, next is, oh, it's the, 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 the UFO religion book that yes, I'm we, doing. We, we are doing American Cosmic by D.W. Pasuka. That's the one. Pasuka? Pasluka? Something like that. I'll figure out the proper pronunciation before we record the episode. 
I'm so excited to be a pseudo-intellectual about this shit. Oh, uh-huh. it, it, I have already started the book, and this is one that has been on my want-to-read list forever, and I've just somehow never gotten around to it, so thank you, Rory, for selecting it. Yeah. Uh, it is an academic theologian's perspective on the UFO phenomenon, and it is fascinating. The career I was too weak to pursue. It's not too late. Nope. You're young, Tink. Oh, God. And we're back. Lead us out of here, Tinkerbell. <sighs> or Jay. Lead us out of here, Jay. Jay or Bell. The rest of the podcast is just the sounds of me beating it to death. <laughs> For the next 25 seconds. <laughs> ah, no. Why? You have so many teeth somehow. <laughs> <laughs> Good night, ghosties. Good night, coolies. Good night, moth people. Stay safe out there on those midnight roads. And look out for fairies. <laughs> Just get lost. It's more fun that way. Don't fucking get lost. I'm so tired of this argument. Elizabeth Bathory versus Elizabeth Borden. Fight!